Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. I'm your host today, Charles Maxwood, and we are talking to Armin. I love getting people from other countries because I'm looking at the name and going, let me let me try it. It's Vardanian. Yeah, you got it mostly right. <laughs> um, yeah. Armenian words usually are pronounced as they are written. So. Yeah, cool. So do you want to just tell us a little about yourself, what you do over there in Armenia? And yeah, how long have you been doing Angular and all that good stuff? Yeah, sure. So I'm a senior front-end developer at an Armenian company called Volo. I'm in fact sitting in our office right now in a conference room. I'm a front-end team lead and I'm working on Angular for, I think it's the fourth year that I'm working on Angular already. So we started one of our projects back when Angular 2 was in beta. Uh-huh. I guess I've been there from the start. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember those days, The all the anxiety around, you know, all the stuff that was changing. Yeah, it was, uh, it was sort of, uh, you were in constant danger that something that you are doing today is going to change <laughs> yes. tomorrow and you will have to refactor yeah. some of your code again. Yeah, but we're in a good place now. I'm kind of curious as we get started. I mean, we don't often hear a whole lot from Armenia, I guess, in the Angular community. Mm-hmm. So what what does the development and <clears throat> Angular community look like out there? So... Uh, Armenia has this problem with our developers that don't really participate a lot in the community, uh, I mean, in, in, a, in a global sense. But we actually have lots of uh, very good software developers uh, and in Angular too. So the, mo- the most biggest part of the market is React, but there are lots of also big companies here that use Angular and concentrate on Angular. And as a, as a matter of fact, I am also teaching Angular uh, in a private coding school. It's kind of like a long boot camp. Uh, of course, uh, there are not as many people enrolled in that program as there are people in the React program, but uh, mm-hmm. we still have enough demand for Angular developers to you know, keep it going. Yeah. That makes sense. It's more usually the, the larger companies that use Angular. Oh, really? That's interesting. Because I've seen a bunch of larger companies using React. I've seen I've seen kind of all across the board, I guess, for all kinds. But I, I talk to people across the board. <laughs> so There are also companies that use kind of both on uh-huh. different projects. For example, uh, one company probably know about, you know, Pixar, right? The, right. That's an Armenian company. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that they use both Angular and Oh, interesting. React. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they have reached out to me to, uh, you know, try to uh, hire me into their Angular program. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't want to, but that's how <laughs> I learned that they actually are doing Angular. I always thought that in, in their web projects, they're using only React. I know that they were using React, but it turned out they also had projects in Angular, the different products, right. so probably... Yeah, that makes sense. I'm kind of curious as we get into this. How did you get into Angular? That's that's sort of an uh, interesting story is that at the very beginning, I was a PHP developer. Uh So the very first job I got, which by the way started this day exactly five years ago. That was my very first working day, say so. And I was hired as a PHP developer, but 
the very first day they told me that they really needed a python developer so they asked if <laughs> i could try to you know learn some basics quickly and try to do some features and i was yeah, sure okay i'm already hired so i guess i don't have really an option <laughs> so i so i spent like four days doing some python and started doing backend but uh, uh -huh. in, in, uh, working on a project uh, there were pieces written in angular js in 2016 within the beginnings of 2016 we didn't really have Angular one up and running, so so I started doing doing Angular JS, and uh, it sort of became apparent that it's more interesting for me. So when they got a project that they were going to write from scratch, they decided to create a single page application on Angular JS and all of that, and and, and I started doing it. So I, I got I, I ditched backend and started doing only front end in Angular JS. Then I switched to my current office, and they were also starting a new project from scratch. And they were already doing it in Angular, in Angular 2, which was in, I guess, I believe it was in beta yet. Yeah, so that's how I got into Angular. And um, Awesome. It's been, it's been a long run, but <laughs> uh, I still enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun stuff. I mean, I, I kind of dabble in all of them, and it's, it's interesting to see the different approaches, but also see the things that they have in common. So, yeah, good deal. So... You've been writing, I, I I think I found like two or three articles where you wrote about RxJS or, you know, some kind of reactive code. Uh, I'm a little curious as we get into this, what what was it that drove you to start writing about RxJS in particular? I mean, RxJS is kind of core to the way that Angular works, but for the most part, I find that I can kind of not pay a whole lot of attention to it, what RxJS is doing and just kind of do things the Angular way and it mostly works. And then I just kind of know in my head that it's RxJS that's doing the heavy lifting. Well, for me, it was sort of work experience thing that I was working on a project that had lots of interconnected logic. So okay. uh, uh, in a sense, it, imagine like this is a UI that I have like a dropdown. I have another dropdown and the values in this dropdown depend on what I selected in the other dropdown. And everything that I select in those two dropdowns depend on some permissions that come from backend. Like, can I do this? Can I do that? And everything right. is very mixed. So at first I was trying to keep track of all that stuff in an imperative way. Like, like you said, the Angular way. So I, uh -huh. I write methods. So when uh, on select this thing, uh, run this function, which will go update the internal state and so on. But it quickly got out of hands because I ended up trying to synchronize five or six different states with each other so that if uh -huh. one updates, the other has to update. And it's all, it, uh -huh. it was all inside one component. I, I couldn't even, mm -hmm. uh, they were so interconnected, I couldn't even divide them into several components to try to write sort of make them communicate with each other. Uh, so for the next piece, I decided I will try to do it in an RxJS way. I will try to create uh, sort of observables for all the stuff and use op operators and functions like combine latest or with latest from and so on too. And I will use the async pipe to just, just derive the state sort of from observables that I already have and put them directly into the template using the async function, so no subscribes. And it worked way more elegantly than uh, anything that I was trying to do before that. 
And I always enjoyed RHGS, but I was in the camp of the people that would say, oh, no, you're using too much RHGS. This is over engineering and so on. <laughs> I, I always thought like, oh, why, why did this guy put, I don't know, this logic inside an observable? Don't really need an observable. You just use just use an imperative function. Uh-huh. But after doing it, I kind of got the, the notion behind it that I can view my derived data in the end as a combination right. of different streams and operators applied to them to map and find my final state that I'm going to display to the end user. And that was a very elegant thing. So I started sort of investigating inside my project before starting to read what other people write about RHS, because of course you can find lots of articles and great literature online on how RHS may benefit your application and so on. I started investigating my own application, tried to find out, oh, again, oh, I find this function. I don't need this function. I can ditch it. I can, I can put it inside a single property that's an observable and use it with, with operator and so on and so on. I started sort of writing down pieces of rules that uh, I will try to follow. And lots of those rules were actually stupid rules. I was sort of finding out. Yeah, I was sort of finding out what I have to do with trial and error, trial and error, and then one day I was like, "Okay, let's just try to read about more about RxJS." I just opened documentation and started trying different operators, and my project transformed. I sort of got way better code, and I thought, "Yeah, this is this is this is good." I'm I'm going to write an article about it because. Um, every time that I sort of go through an experience with uh, a new library, a new design pattern or mm-hmm. uh, some, a new approach, uh, the best way for me to finally digest what I learned is to try to communicate my new knowledge to others. So when I sort of, when I teach, I also learn. That's mm-hmm. a two-way thing for me. I always write an article about anything new that I've learned. Then it got rolling. So I got three articles on RxJS in Angular. I got an article on unexpected things in RxJS. I wrote an article on best practices in RxJS. I guess I have six or seven articles on RxJS. Nice. And I think I saw some of them on Angular in depth. Is that where they're all posted or just some of them? Uh, I guess uh, one or two of them have been posted on Medium. Then yeah. in depth moved uh, from moved from Medium. They stopped uh, posting on their blog there. They only post on the, on, on the website and, the, and in the in-depth community. So first I was copying uh, that stuff to Medium, but then I also stopped. I, I don't actually visit Medium. Uh, I, I opened Medium like a week ago and was terrified to find out I actually 1,000 followers. <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know I had that many followers on Medium. You're popular, <laughs> man. Yeah, and I didn't know about it because like for four or five months, I didn't even open Medium. I also stopped reading there sort of after getting involved with in-depth. Yeah, I didn't know I was talking to celebrity. Wow. So, <laughs> Not um, the most famous uh, minion, but... <laughs> There you go. Got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just I find this really fascinating and it's it's interesting too cuz I was uh I was working on an app myself where we were building like a sign up wizard yeah. and yeah, we kind of put I mean we were doing react, but we were putting a whole bunch of stuff in, you know, basically a higher order function or a higher order component right that had a whole bunch of components up underneath it so that we could maintain all the state underneath it and 
yeah, like maintaining all of the different events that were going on in it and reacting to those. It was, yeah, just doing it kind of the react way, or I was trying to think of how to do it in Angular, and we probably would have approached it much the same way and, you know, done things the Angular way. I realized that, yeah, there were a lot of events that we would have been emitting that, yeah, something like RxJS, I didn't even think about it. And I'm just going, I feel kind of silly now because, yeah, it would have been so much easier to just approach it with RxJS and just say, okay, if any of these things happen, right, then emit an event. And if any of these things happen, emit an event. And then, yeah, if we come back around to any of this stuff, then, you know, we're subscribed to those events and we just know what to do. So... Yeah, the, the same sort of revelation I went through when I was trying to refactor lots of stuff. Nowadays, when I start anything new, um, the team I'm working in has uh, sort of received new projects all along from the client. So uh-huh. we would just receive something that probably we have to write from scratch using uh, stuff that we already have. Uh, so the yeah. next thing we got, I was like, yeah, but we're going to use NGRX. We're going to use observables. We're going to use RGS a lot. My next stop is try to refactor and move away from using internal states at, at all. Like I'm, I'm going to use the NGRX component store mm-hmm. for all the internal interactions and use NGRX for everything com- com- communicating between the components. It's yeah, more sort of an experiment. I'm not sure that that's a good idea. Yeah. I will I will try to do it, and I guess it might be a good idea because but I can I can now ditch normal change detection i can use on pushing all the components because i'm only uh, having observables and async pipe i i don't have to use normal change detection i can default to on push that's a nice thing to have and also i will sort of that will solve the problem that if you like oh am i going to create an observable by hand for everything no you can just you know, use the store class uh, and uh-huh. extend from it, write the store writer selectors, and put them in the component. So it can be, it can exist in parallel with your component and you will see all the transformations of the store with the updater functions and so on. Just put it there, use the async pipe and so on and so on. And I think that might be nice. So I'm sort of going to write a proof of concept or something like that. Can, can we ditch local internal class-based states and just use RGS? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of curious to see how that would work out. To, to be perfectly honest, I haven't done a whole lot with RxJS or NGRX. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all comes together. So what what is kind of the biggest thing or the biggest problem that you found RxJS solves within your, your app? Uh, well, uh, well, for starters, uh, again, the biggest sort of benefit that you get from it is removing the imperative logic, number one benefit, and uh-huh. not having to synchronize two different states. So the, my biggest problem always was that I have sort of these two pieces of data that are interconnected, but it's not that like one is derived from the other or something, but more like the change in this one can trigger a change in this one in a way if there is some condition or something, something. And that is really like obviously apparent in large applications like enterprise apps when you have different configurations, uh, personal user settings that can affect the UI and customized things and so on and so on and so on. And when you switch to RxJS, you sort of even unwillingly, you have this single source of truth. 
So you don't have to check three or four places to see how your state is transformed. If there is sort of you have this small dependency, like you have an ng model binding or you have a component and you pass in an input and you use the async pipe. So apparently this is an observable. Mm-hmm. If you go to that observable, you immediately know what can happen to it. You see, this is the observable. Oh, this is the stream. This begins here. These right. this, this, this operators are used on it. So, and, and that's the end. So you don't have to look anywhere because it's an observable. No one can modify it from somewhere else. This is what you mm-hmm. have. This is always what you have. If there is a problem, it's in these five lines of code or anything you have written. Right. So if you really use that well, it's easy to read. It's easy to find stuff in your code. You don't get sort of, oh, oh okay, I have this array. Let's let's use control F, C, whoever has updated, <laughs> or let's do right. right-click and file references and stuff like that. No, you don't have to. This is apparently everything you have. And that's a, it's a big thing because then you will always have bugs. And obviously, mm-hmm. most of your work then would be to try to find where the bug is coming from because usually when we find in in like 80 percent of cases if, if we find where the bug is sort of located we usually easily fix that right so the finding is sometimes as a problem understanding right. exactly which piece of code affects so if we have only one piece of code that is affecting anything so it's very easy oh, okay i have five operators one of them is doing something wrong let's find out what what is in the five lines of code that for me is the biggest benefit because in imperative logic you always have to sort of dive into trying to understand oh why why do we have a loop here oh, oh this is all oh, okay uh, this is array push something into array get something from array and sort of go, mm-hmm. go on and go on and go on and that can become overwhelming especially if the logic is large yeah that makes sense I mean yeah you you subscribe to a stream and then yeah everything that happens downstream from that. Yeah, yeah, nobody's modifying the array. It emits another stream yeah. or another array, yeah. effectively. And so it's it's easy to follow. I guess the other question that I have, just kind of talking through your story here and talking through the, you know, the situation where you, you know, you move kind of outside of the internal state management with Angular and into observables was, at what point do you, do you feel like that makes sense? I mean, should you just do that from the get-go? Or do you wait till you're, app gets to a certain complexity before you start using rxjs as as this kind of yeah that's actually a very good question because uh, for lots of people uh, usually that exact question is the sort of obstacle that usually either don't have enough time to think about it or just don't want to refactor too much or don't want to uh, sort of over-engineer, like lots of people mm-hmm. have said, oh, maybe I'm blowing this out of proportions. Maybe I don't need this whole lot of stuff. Maybe I'm doing just the regular way. Uh, yeah, but my course, answer to that is usually try it and then you'll yeah. know, right? Yeah, sort of, yeah. But of course, obviously in the real world, lots of people that won't have enough time to do that. Like right. this project, you have this deadline, you have to do something and you're not sure. Maybe if yeah. I try to do this, this is something new, maybe I won't have time. And of course, some people will say, oh, my application is small. I don't need something like that. I was saying that in the context of uh, NGRX, but I said something on Twitter like six months ago, something that lots of people sort of agreed with. Uh, It it, it went like this. If you have an, an application that is large enough that you write it in Angular, 
then you have an application that is large enough that you can use NGRX. In. And the same for me applies to RxJS. It may sound a bit radical, like yeah, maybe not. Uh, some people say, oh, this is a small thing. But if, if it's so small, if you say sort of a two pages, why do you need this behemoth of a framework that Angular is? Like it's big, it has lots right. of features, it has lots of features. You can write it in something easier. If you, of course, obviously, if the Angular is the only thing that you know, that's, of course, normal. That's also a situation that happens in real life. Uh, but in most cases, usually people would know some technology. They're writing something really small. But if you're writing right. something really big and that you already opted to use Angular because it has lots of features, because people usually like Angular for all the out-of-the-box stuff that it provides. Angular developers that use sometimes use React, most of the confusion they get is, oh, how do I do stop this? We usually in Angular we have this, this, and I have to now go on find third-party libraries to do something, maybe write something from scratch uh, to do that in React. Uh, that's what they usually find not good uh, in other frameworks, especially in React, because React is more like sort of shallow, and and that's a good thing in its own way. I personally enjoy React, but the thing that I like Angular more is that it's more opinionated. It says uh, mm -hmm. and it has more features. It says oh, you can use this and this and this. You don't have to think about HTTP requests where we got you covered. Right. You don't have to think about forms. And for me, Angular forms is the best thing Angular has. It's it's flawed. But for me, it's really the best like uh, form-related library out there. It's it's very good. It right. everything you need. So, of course, you opt in for Angular for all those features. So obviously, if you need lots of features, then you have a larger enough application. So why not use uh, Angular for interconnected pieces at least? You don't even need to use any write everything in Angular. There mm -hmm. is some debate to it, but obviously. The stuff that is interconnected, the stuff that is shared, stayed between components, and JRX will just solve all of that for that for you. Right. So it makes sense to do that. The same goes for for RxJS. NGRX is basically like RxJS but stronger. So mm -hmm. if you can use RxJS to solve some problems, it would be good. And the sooner you start it, the less problematic it would be to use that code because refactoring is always harder than writing code from scratch, obviously. Uh, you usually face more bugs if you do refactoring because right. uh, sometimes you might look at code that you yourself even have written, but you would misunderstand something there and refactoring into RGS, you will lose some use case or something. So, of course, starting earlier, my advice would be if you're beginning an Angular application, at least consider using more RGS or maybe using Anjarex if you're going into it, at least consider it. <laughs> right. No, that makes sense. It's it's kind of interesting though that you started out with if your app is big enough for Angular, then it's big enough to, to use RxJS. Because mm -hmm. I mean, I that is true, you know. And I thought, okay, well, then what would you use for the smaller apps? And you know, a few I, things come to mind, like you know, use HTML and CSS, obviously. But then you know, you pull in like a jQuery or a Stimulus or something like that that just kind of puts stuff over the top of it that just kind of gets you the functionality that you need. That's that's really really simple. Yeah, you're pulling in Angular when you need something that's a little more yeah. that has more depth to the experience sure. you're creating. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So, what I guess the other thing that I'm wondering about is, you know, now that you've kind of gone into the deep end with RxJS, uh, what do you find are the things that people misunderstand about it? Like, where where do people get stuck on 
on RxJS being a solution or get stuck on what it can and can't do? Well, I had uh, experience with lots of developers that tried RxJS, both in our team and outside. So I noticed that there are many free problems with RxJS, but people sort of not write the best code that they could do. And this, all, all of them are connected to how they use RxJS. So uh-huh. they either not use it enough, misuse it, or plainly abusing it. Okay. So uh, I try to cover all the free cases. So obviously, first case, not using it enough, because there's a problem, can be solved with RxJS. People won't try to apply reactive logic to it. For that, I've written my very first article, and it's called RxJS in Angular. It was the first one, the, the three parts. And in part one, I wrote about how you can change your imperative logic to more reactive or functional programming style, to a more declarative approach, okay? Uh, So it involved trying to understand the source of data, trying to understand what affects the data and how it gets transformed, and then getting the final result and displaying it to in the template in, in the UI. So those were the steps that you can sort of try to apply to any problem. Like if you got, I'm going to develop this feature, I can try to use the steps to understand how can I convert it, right, using RxJS. You can sort of always try to do that. So uh, even if you don't convert something, something is large enough, you have to refactor, you don't have time, you still can like sort of process in your head. Uh, it, it won't take really much. You can like, try to think about for 10 minutes. If you sort of understand instantly how the flow of the data is, Okay, you can go forward and just try to write an RxJS. People often don't do that. I know people that know RxJS well. They know lots of operators, how they work, some nuances, mm-hmm. but they just won't use them. It's like, yeah, okay, I wrote five lines of code. It works. Yeah, I don't think RxJS for this, but really, it would look more elegant and more scalable if they did RxJS, even even for the five lines of code. So that's the first problem: not using it enough, not sort of getting into it, and trying to apply to all, at least mentally apply to all the problems that they try to solve. So that's point one. And then it comes point two, it's sort of misusing RxJS. So how people do misuse RxJS is usually what they do in the first step. So a lot of some people will come and think, yeah, okay, I'm not using RxJS enough. I want to use it more. That's a really good start, but obviously they are going to make mistakes on the way, as all of us have done. So uh-huh. what would they do is they will sort of start using observables and not really appreciating all, all the all the upsides that they provide like subscribing a lot you don't really need to subscribe to an observable like explicitly you can use the async right. pipe so that's the first thing people just teach it they will uh, write subscribe and a callback with lots of imperative logic then uh, they will use they will use features of the language instead of using operators like in one of my articles about best practices i I was sort of talking about how you can change how your subscribe logic looks like. So sort of, if you have, for example, an if statement, so you you write subscribe, you get some data, then you write if data is true, something, something, then do something, something. In RxJS, you can use a filter operator for that. Mm -hmm. You can just write filter and subscribe function will be called at all. Okay? Right. And it will look way more sort of concise, like right. look, you see, if you see the filter, oh, okay, there are some conditions that are not allowed. 
Okay, mm -hmm. you see that immediately in subscribing. I have a large function inside an if, so you have to go through and read the subscribe function. Right. You really don't need that, right? Filter and the condition is obvious. So after that, you don't perform anything, and right. that is also sort of better a bit minor bit. But you know, if you're a more or less perfectionist, it would be great. So you don't need to execute five operators and then don't do nothing in the subscribe because the condition is not met. You can put filter wherever the data is ready that you can check and not allow all the other operators to work. So that's also a nice thing to do. Or people would not know enough operators. Obviously, you can't know all of the operators too much and you don't really need most of them. But I guess one good thing you can do is one day when you have two or three spare hours, you can open RxJS documentation website and just scroll for operators and find stuff that is interesting. There are also there are operators that come in sort of families like mm -hmm. throttle, throttle time, uh, window, debounce time, debounce, and so on. So you can sort of know about them. You don't need to write examples of all of them. Just know that, oh, there is an operator that does debounce something. Right. So in the future, you will remember that, okay, I've heard about some operator that might have used, be of use in this case and go use it. Lots of times people don't do that. So that's an example of sort of misusing RxJS. Like you are using RxJS and it actually provides a very nice solution to your problem with one operator, right. two, a combination, two custom, uh, sorry, built-in operators, but you don't know about them or you don't sort of think to deeply enough, deeply enough about that particular observable. So you don't use it and you end up with worse code. So, right. so that's the sort of next bad problem with uh, with RxJS in that case. So people use it, but don't sort of get deep enough to really harness all the benefits that it provides. Okay. Yeah, uh, and then we of course arrive at the third point that is just plainly abusing RxJS. Yeah, I, I have seen pretty horrible code that to this day I don't understand why people opted to do that, because what would they do is sort of everything was an observable, but in a sort of scattered way. So they would mm -hmm. have properties. For example, they would have an event. I, I even exactly I exactly remember how that logic went. There, there is this chat window. It looked like Facebook Messenger, sort of. Right. In the sense, you have conversations on the left and you have uh -huh. the big chat window in the middle. So the thing is, you click on the conversation, there is an HTTP request, it loads the last 20 or something messages and it displays. So of course, you can do it, uh, say, we didn't, we haven't been using any state management back then, we didn't use NGRX or something. So you could do it in a more or less practical way without RxJS. Okay, you could just click handler that will call a service, load data, pass it with the inputs to another component and it would render or something. But what they really did was it like, oh, we want it to be reactive in a way. So instead of sort of understanding how their data works, creating observables in, in a normal sense, combining them, they would just be like, okay, here is a subject that notifies me about the click on the button. Essentially what that subject was doing was just, it would emit when the button is clicked. And it was really useless and it made code very unreadable because now you cannot even navigate using the IDE tooling to find out, oh, well, okay, this, uh, this function next, this subject. 
who right. can subscribe to it. And then in some service somewhere far away, there is someone subscribes to it and it gets it, loads some data and then passes it to another subject. So it has to sort of go through all <laughs> the same of events to find out, well, oh, okay, here is a service. Oh, okay, finally data is loaded. Oh, oh my God, here's another observable, another subject. Right. Now this subject is passed to another service that is injected in the other component that needs it. And, right. and then the other component <laughs> subscribes to this subject. It's sort of a big, large and unnecessary chain of uh, subjects that are calling each other, sending events. We really didn't need that. Uh, that was like horrible. Uh, it, it really was an abuse. I, I cannot find right. another like sort of word that I can describe it with. Of course, it came from notion that people were overly enthusiastic about or just, oh, right. okay, we're going to sort of... That's why you need solutions like NGRX. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the good thing about NGRX is like, okay, if you, if you need some data, just select it from the store. You don't have to work with 15 observables. There is one source of proof. Right. All of your state is inside it. You can use the reducer function to reason about it. So you don't have a problem. You can always follow the logic. If, oh, okay, data is not transformed in a way that uh, you expect it. Okay, I will go debug the reducer function and that's it. Or I will use the uh, Redux DevTools uh, extension and just find out, oh, okay, after this right. uh, action, something changed. Okay, I will just check the function. It's a pure function. You can easily reason about it and you're done. But in this case, you got the like horrible mess that uh, uh, is plainly its abuse of the thing. So that's the main problem that people uh, face when they start doing RxJS. Usually, that's why they either uh, not think deeply about it, uh-huh. either think too deeply about it, and uh, in the end, they would probably get disappointed. They would think, oh, this didn't suit me well, but the problem is they didn't use it in a way that was intended. Right, that makes sense. I could see myself doing the last one, just trying to separate concerns and then, yeah, yeah having stuff all over the place. So <laughs> instead oh, of just well, saying, that, uh, yeah, well, that happens. subscribe to this and then, yeah, yeah. just do the yeah. process, just do the work yeah, that, on it. That, that's why actually in, in the RGS uh, the community, they say, oh, don't subscribe, just don't subscribe. Subscribe ends, uh, ends like uh, the nice things about. I actually worked on a document for the RHS documentation. Uh, they wanted to have a best practices page. There was an open issue. I submitted a draft pull request. It's, it's in a process of work. And different community members and contributors wrote in the comments what would they like to have in that draft that I, I wrote, sort of. Uh, and one of the main things that uh, was noticed is let's inform people that use RHGS about the fact that subscribe ends composability. And composability right. is actually why we use RHGS. When you read subscribe, you cannot use any operators, right? It's over. Right. You, you have the data to do anything with it. It's usually imperative logic. So when you subscribe, it's end of story. So obviously you need to subscribe because observers that you don't subscribe to don't do anything. But you don't need to do right. it explicitly and do all that heavy lifting inside it. In Angular, you have the async pipe, and also with uh, NGRX, if you use, uh, there is this experimental uh, NGRX component that provides directives that you can use. There is the NGRX less directive. It's a very nice thing. You can just extract the observable result to a variable, a local variable in your template, and use it. Uh, it's better than writing uh, ng if, uh, async as something to use it without the async right. pipe. It's a very nice thing. I use it in my project a lot. Uh, so you really don't subscribe manually tons of groups after that. You just 
use the value. Okay, you, you right. need the value in the template. If you're writing Angular, you don't need the state for the sake of the state. You need something to display in the UI. If something is never displayed in the UI, you probably don't need that. Mm -hmm. You either display that exact state in the UI or some result of that state, something that happens because you have a state like this. So wrap it in an observable, take it, use an async pipe, and it's over. Uh, there is only one case that is I sort of allow people to subscribe in our projects when we do code review. We always try to follow the rule and not subscribe manually. And the only case that we allow to do that is if you're using third-party code that only has an imperative approach. Best example is form controls in Angular. Uh, they have a disable function and an enable function. They are imperative functions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I have an observable of user permissions or something, for example, if you don't have permission X, this input should be disabled. So if you're using form controls, then uh, you will have to subscribe and see if the permission is not there. You have to do control.disable. But that's imperative logic. You cannot just put it in template. With template-driven forms, you can ditch that. You can use the disabled attribute on the uh, input element or something. But the reactive forms don't allow for that, which right. is sort of weird because reactive <laughs> forms are supposed to be reactive, not imperative, which they usually right. are, but they sort of have lots of imperative questions. Marcus Taj said disable, I don't know, disable, enable, and so on and so on. Well, most of them are a bit imperative. So the, that's the only case that probably, yeah, sort of you, don't, you don't have a choice or, or you have a library function that does something, something you have to call it. You cannot just write an observable right. and put it in. That's the only case that will allow do that. And, uh, th that's a nice thing to start from. If you write subscribe, uh, maybe something isn't very right. Try to understand how you can do it better. So, sort of, uh, it provides, it's like a point of uh, thinking, like, uh, how can I make my RGS code better? Oh, let's take a look. How many subscribes do I have and how many can I ditch? Not right. Them. A good starting point if you have a RGS code base and want to refactor it. Makes sense. Cool. What about testing RxJS? That's sort of the uh, my biggest weakness is that uh, I don't do much testing uh, because uh, the requirements, yeah, don't, don't, they don't, the requirements don't from our client don't, don't sort of go into the unit testing or something. So most of the testing that I have done have been like experimental. But of course, if we talk in theory about testing uh, RHS, there is there are marble tests, and mm -hmm. if you don't have side effects in your RxJS. So sort of you don't use the tab function, the, the tab operator, which is also considered a bad practice. You don't, if you, only if you really have side effects that you really, really have to have something like that. If you don't write the tab function, you sort of have a bunch of pure functions. Okay. Uh -huh. you, know, you can more or less easily test that even without the marble testing, just using basic unit tests. You can do that. In the very end, if you have some properties on a class that are observables, you can just, okay, create an instance of that class, maybe subscribe to the mm -hmm. observables, see what data comes and how you can sort of manipulate the source of the data. Like, is it coming from an event? You can always sort of trigger that event. Okay, trigger that event, see how the observable goes. You don't need to sort of test every other operator. The operators are working. They are tested in the library. You only need to test the result. You can treat it sort of like it's just a property that I have to subscribe right. to. 
I'm checking for the data. So trigger an event, see what is the data. Um, so I guess it would also sort of make testing easier if you, and if you use NGRX, then testing is way, way easier because you sort of have to test just two things. You have to test three things, sorry. You have to test selectors, which usually are pure functions, so they should be pure functions. So it's easy to test, right? So it's just a function. It gets, right. you, have the, you have the state, you know about the state. You're the one mm -hmm. the providing a mocked version of the state to the unit test. Right. So you can just check the result and it's okay. If you get the result that you expect, it's okay. It's very easy to test. And they usually don't have very many use cases. You have to test um, reducers, which also, again, reducer is a pure function. You provide the action with a payload, mm -hmm. get the result. Uh, it's expected. So, okay, it's done. You don't have to. There are not lots of different cases and other uh, global variables that can affect it. A reducer is a pure function. So right. it's easy to test. The only thing that is probably less easy to test is the effects, but uh, that's really the main point. If you, if you have effects in HRX, that's the only place that you have effects. So if right. you get that covered, you mock the services you have, uh, you throw in the action, see if the resulting action comes with the payload that you have expected. So mm -hmm. it's sort of the same. It's sort of the same thing that you actually do with the reducer. It's just not a pure function. You know, so it does something on the side, like calling a server or maybe going right. to local storage or something. But you don't have to again; you don't have to test that because there is another service doing it. You have you have uh, you have a unit test for that service. Uh, like mm -hmm. for practical example, say you have an orders service that loads orders, okay, uh, the data, and you have the order effects. They don't really need to test order service in the order effect test. You will just test if. There is an action called load orders. Right. Okay, here's the action with this payload. And I expect this result. I expect this action with this result. So you don't really care what happens inside it. Uh, even if it does some complicated logic, you don't care, care about the results. So you can right. sort of sort of treat it like a quasi-pure function. It, it isn't, obviously, but because you have mocked the service, it will always return the result that you have expected. If you if you have written the correct code in the uh, effects, that's what you're testing for. Okay? Right. And then you will test the order service separately, which actually will be just mocking the backend uh, with uh, I don't know XHR mock XHR backend or something something or the HTTP uh -huh. testing library in Angular testing. So uh, testing the other would also be easy. So essentially, you get two interconnected classes that are both 100% test covered and. Uh, that really made your job easier. If you have been doing all of that in the component, mm -hmm. then that component unit test will be really big. You will have to mock the service and mm -hmm. put it, okay, oh, this component uses five or seven services, for example. You have to mock all of them, put them inside this component, and then check for it in every way. Like, oh, this button is clicked, this function is called, this service server function is called, mock data is here, it's rendered, something, something. NGRX saves you from that too. In, in your components, you usually only inject, if your component is that's a bit smaller and uses only external state, you inject only the store. Inject the store right. as one. You don't need to mock the store. You don't mock the store in mm -hmm. uh, NGRX test. You mock the selector. And it's very easy to mock a selector because you essentially just say, oh, this is the data that this selector is going to return. And that's it. Right. It has a mock selector function like 
say, okay, uh, I have an, um, the orders property that I already use in the component. Ah, mm -hmm. okay, I'm, I'm, I'm off the selector. And I'm like, now there are three orders. Now I'm off, now there are five order orders. Let's see what happened in the UI of the eight words. No, it's really easier to do that than to try to mock. You don't mock the dependency, rather just mock the data with the selector uh, functions. Right. Yep, that makes sense. All right. Let's see. Is there anything else that we should cover? I guess the next question I have is if people want to follow you, because you have a thousand followers on Medium now, if people want to make it a thousand and one, I guess they can go on Medium and find you there. And then I'm also wondering about like Twitter and GitHub and anywhere else that you want people to follow you at. Yeah. Yeah, I, I usually want people to follow me on Twitter because I usually now post stuff there uh, because if I remember correctly, you cannot follow author on in-depth. I think we don't have that functionality there. So, But I always post my articles and some other folks on Twitter. So I guess people can follow me on Twitter. Okay. What's your Twitter handle? It's uh, Armando True. All right. Well, we'll make sure that we have a link to that in the show notes if you just put it in the chat we'll yeah. put it over there yeah yeah okay and then the last thing that we do on the show is picks and picks is just us shouting out about stuff that we like stuff that is making life better or more enjoyable or whatever right yeah. so i'll go ahead and go first just to uh get things rolling so i've been listening to and i have to say i'm really slow on the uh, fiction books just because mm. i don't have a ton of time but I've really been enjoying these books. I'm listening through them for the third or fourth time. I listen through the books whenever a new one comes out. And a new one came out last year. And yes, I'm slow. Yes, the, the book came out last year. But uh, I've been listening to the, the Stormlight Archives by Brandon Sanderson. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a fictional series. It's a fantasy series. It takes place on another world where... How, how do I talk about it without spoiling it? Anyway... They have these powers where they essentially can channel light that, okay, I'll explain a little bit of it, but I'm not going to take too long because I don't want to take too long. But effectively, so there's a, there's storms that come through the, you know, on a regular basis. And when the storms come through, they infuse gems with light. They call it storm light. And then there are certain people that can take that storm light and use it to do magic. And anyway, the, the thing, though, with Brandon Sanderson's books is the magic systems are interesting, but the characters and the, the storylines and stuff are way more interesting. And to me, at least, that's the thing that I really love about a lot of the, the movies and books that I enjoy are kind of those things, right? That's why a lot of people really enjoyed the original Star Wars trilogy, right, is because the characters were rich. It followed the hero's journey. It, you know, yes, I'm kind of a, a story writing nerd. But anyway, so it followed some of the formulas that we're familiar with. And, you know, we really, really love the characters. And it's interesting because I talked to people about some of the later Star Wars series, you know, whether it be the prequels, you know, episodes one, two, and three. And people were just like, they just weren't as good. And I don't know why, right? Because the special effects were better and everything else. And it's because the characters weren't as interesting, right? Um, you kind of knew who Obi-Wan Kenobi was going to end up being. And he got a little more interesting as he started pushing back in some ways against, you know, some of the other Jedi masters. But, you know, Anakin was just this whiny kid through the whole thing. And he just wasn't that interesting to watch. Right. There was no progression for the character. You know, same with Padme. You know, she was just always, you know, 
she she struggled with her decision to be with Anakin, but that was pretty much it, right? Or the new series, even, you know, where you don't see the same internal struggles that you saw from Luke and Leia and Han and their struggles with who they were from uh, Ray or Finn or any of those characters, right? And yeah. that's what we wanted to see. And in fact, they actually undid some of the growth that you saw from Luke in the original series when they brought him back. And a lot of people had issues with that. And so anyway, Brandon does a really good job with his characters and the way that he puts them together. And then some of the situations that they find themselves in and, you know, trying to make their way through this universe and all of his, well, I shouldn't say all, a lot of his books take place in the same universe, which he calls the Cosmere. And so that's always fun too, because you're wondering uh, at what point they're going to start meeting each other, right? Because there are ways for them to travel between the worlds. And none of his books have done that yet with more than like a handful of characters. There are a few characters that move between worlds and you, you do meet them as you move through the worlds. The Stormlight Archives actually has one character that you've seen in several of the books, but he kind of has this passing role. And in this book, in the first Stormlight Archives book, he's actually almost a main character. So that, that was fun. But anyway, I'm nerding out and I need to just, uh, you know, get off the bandwagon here for a minute. I really enjoyed the book. So go check those out. The first book is The Way of Kings. The second book is Words of Radiance. And that's the one I'm listening to right now. And so uh, go check those out. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. I listen to them on Audible, so I'll put a link to Audible as well. And then the other pick that I have is the Dev Influencers Accelerator. I'm just going to keep reminding people it is out there. Basically, the idea is, is that if you're trying to get your career to go to the next level and you want to make an impact on the community while you do it and eventually you'd like to get paid for it then then the dev influencers accelerator is for you and basically what we're doing is we're walking you through the process of starting a hit podcast and then we're gonna take you from producing the podcast and having a podcast that is going out every week to growing it rapidly and i think i can get people to be in the top five podcasts in their niche within six months. So if that sounds interesting to you, then come join us. You can go check it out at devinfluencers.com slash apply. Also, I did start a Dev Influencers podcast and that's at devinfluencers.com slash podcast. All right, Armin, what are your picks? Uh, when, I, uh, when we were talking about uh, books that you have been listening to, I, I kind of thought it's a nice topic to sort of build on because uh, I, I like both fantasy and science fiction a lot. I, I, I like Star Wars. Uh, mm-hmm. If I knew we were going to talk about Star Wars, I would wear my Star Wars t-shirt. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the, and the, the thing that gets me excited about the topic is waiting for the Dune movies to come out. Oh yeah, um, because uh, I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of the books, and I actually uh, regret not. I've never read the books. Earlier. Are they good? The Dune uh, books? They are amazing for me. They're the best thing in science fiction, and probably most uh-huh. of the literature that I ever read. Uh, and I and I regret not reading it earlier, because Danny Villeneuve is my favorite movie director. I absolutely enjoy all the movies mm-hmm. that uh, he created, like Blade Blade Runner, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and arrival and all, all the other stuff that he had so when i, I uh, and i and i always uh, have known about dune that it's a classic that's a great book but i was, was like uh, maybe i will read something but when i, when I realized that, i've seen the movie the 1980s uh, movie 
Uh, oh no, I, I I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. So I so when I watched the the Villeneuve movie that will eventually hopefully uh-huh. come out, uh, I will have only those impressions. So I I won't sort of think about the Lynch movie. I have seen several clips from the Lynch movie. The actors are really good, but uh, it's it's sort of a bit cheesy. And I know how he changed the ending that isn't really reflecting what Frank Herbert was trying to convey in the books and. Villeneuve is always saying in his interviews that, no, I'm going to sort of try to convey what the author originally intended rather than sort of come up with my interpretations mm-hmm. or something, something, because he's apparently a, a big fan of Frank Herbert. So when I learned when that Danny Villeneuve is making a movie, I was excited. I was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to read at least the first book so that when I go to the movie, I would sort of know what to try to expect, because for me, it's I always love the experience of watching a movie on a book that I like. I enjoyed watching the Harry Potter movies because I like the books. And when I went went to the movies, I enjoyed how they uh, sort of brought all that stuff to the screen. But when I was reading the Dune books, I was sort of blown away, but not from the start. Because from the start, and that's a mistake lots of people make, you think that it's sort of this hero journey it's sort of like star wars like there is this guy who has this problem who has to go through these adventures and then come out on top but in reality it's a sort of dystopia that you find out about only if you keep on reading the other books if you just read dune uh it's again a great piece of literature it's sort of it's very big it's it's a classic it has great characters it has great philosophy in it but you sort of end up with like, yeah, this is big, but sort of in the end, it's just a hero journey. But then if you keep on reading, if you read at least Dune Messiah, which to everyone that wants to read Dune books, I always suggest that they read at least Dune and Dune Messiah, the second book. Mm-hmm. Because originally Herbert intended to release one book that is both Dune and Dune Messiah, but it, it got too long. So the publication asked him to try to sort of put it in half. So the other part of life, and I'm trying not to spoil anything of the <laughs> main protagonist, is in the other book. And when you read the other book, you sort of understand, oh, okay, this really is something different. This really is, rather than being a hero's journey, a sort of trope, it's, it actually criticizes that trope and tries to make the reader to understand that, yeah, you know, that stuff, it only works in works of fiction. In real life, Hero trope is is not the the good, great, and exciting thing that you think about because the hero can easily manipulate you to do horrible things. And it goes on and has this motive, and it's sort of tragedy that goes through that family that goes through all of that. And it it sort of comes back in in, in Children of Dune, which is my favorite. The third book is 100% my favorite in the ones that I've read. I've read up to God Emperor of Dune, the fourth book. Uh, and after that, you sort of take a break and the other events happen too far in the future with new characters, uh, but still being interconnected with the sort of the journey that happens before that. So I didn't really enjoy very much the characters in Heretics of Dune because the plot was very interesting. It got really exciting things, but I I sort of didn't manage to like the characters or empathize with them. So. I stopped somewhere in the middle. I'm still going to finish it, uh, hopefully before uh, movies come out. I want to uh, have written all all the six books before the movie comes out. 
but I, I guess I still have time for that. So that is something that I really enjoy, the, the Dune books. And I would advise anyone to read them because they, they really they contain sort of advice about anything in the world. That, that book is about politics, that book is about religion, and that book is about philosophy and knowledge and even ecology. So it sort of covers everything that we have problematic in our world, that, that everything that raises any conflict in our world. So it's, it's a nice nice, large, big uh, piece of different thoughts and opinions inside those characters that interact with each other. And I, I guess it's a really great read. Interesting. Well, I haven't seen the, the 1980s movies for a long time. So yeah, I'll have to go read the books now. You've sold me. <laughs> I've got a ton of credits right. on Amazon or uh, Audible as well. So yeah, I'm kind of curious because I'm wondering if they're like super long books, if they uh, cost... They kind of are, but they are a bit confusing in, in the beginning because Frank Herbert really doesn't like exposition. He, he will throw on like this terminology of oh, uh, the Bene Gesserit sisterhood uh, and you would uh, yeah, what the hell that is? And uh, oh, okay, uh, yes, yeah, sort of, I get it. Ah, yeah, maybe something. And then it was like, oh, this is Gom Jabbar. Oh, this is something, this, this is the Zensoni religion and so on and so on. Lots of terminology. But when you sort of get the grasp of it, it becomes really exciting. Mm. So uh, you have to pay very deep attention to the dialogues because everything uh, like expositionary happens in the dialogues. Yep. Yep. It's one credit on Audible. So I just, you, you cost me a whole credit. Oh, <laughs> Oh, man. So I hope you really enjoy the book. <laughs> yeah, me too. All right, good deal. Well, thanks for coming. This was fun. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoyed a lot talking about stuff today. All right, well, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. And until next time, folks, Max out.